we are agents of our world, right? And so, you know, we, we encounter tragedy after tragedy after tragedy, and so then we can become sort of passive witnesses to all of these tragedies in our midst, or we can be actively engaged, and I think that's a process of liberating oneself, to be actively engaged in the world and in the work of transforming it. James Baldwin once said that American history is longer, larger, more various, more beautiful, and more terrible than anything anyone has ever said about it. These words inspired Imani Perry when she wrote her scholarly book, More Beautiful and More Terrible, The Embrace and Transcendence of Racial Inequality in the United States. Imani Perry acknowledges wise voices who say that we will never get to the promised land of racial equality. She writes, that may very well be true, but it is also true that extraordinary things have happened and keep happening in our history. The question is, how do we prepare for and precipitate them? I took her up on this emboldening question at the Chautauqua Institution's 2014 season on the cusp of yet a new collective reckoning with the racial fabric of American life. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, in the first of a four-part conversation about the American consciousness. Imani Perry is a professor at the Center for African American Studies at Princeton University. She was born in Birmingham, Alabama, where her grandmother was a domestic servant. When she was seven, her mother matriculated at Harvard and took her to a Massachusetts world of privilege. But Imani Perry also grew up spending summers in inner-city Chicago with her Jewish social activist father. Her upbringing was a joyful, disorienting merger, she's written, of interracial parentage yet salt-of-the-earth blackness, of multi-class identity, of boursin cheese and watermelon, of starched Sunday dresses, and holy jeans. I spoke with Imani Perry in Chautauqua's Outdoor Hall of Philosophy. It was a day of intermittently dramatic rain, which you may hear. So, Imani, I want to start um, just by, I wonder if you'd tell us about the religious and spiritual background of your childhood. You know, however you would describe that now. So, I am um, what you would call a cradle Catholic, but emerging out of, so my um, grandmother's home parish is the Josephite parish, and Josephites went to minister specifically to African Americans. Um, And so I was baptized Catholic, but it was in the midst of a kind of radical liberation theology. Was in Alabama? I was born in Birmingham, Alabama, nine years after the bombing of 16th Street Baptist Church, just a couple of miles away from there. Um, reared in a kind of traditional black southern working class family. Um, but my grandmother was also, or aunt was also, was an extraordinary woman who uh, made sure all 12 of her children went to college, read every single day. Um, she was kind of an organic feminist, um, deeply mm-hmm. independent. And then my mother was an intellectual. She was a philosopher initially and, uh, and an activist. She had been um, a nun at first. Oh, and then she, she had? joined the convent and then <laughs> realized that wasn't the calling for her, that the movement was the calling for her. Um, and they continued to have, over the course of my life, give me a wide array of encounters and experiences. So I moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts and lived there um, in old Cambridge, right and, near Harvard And didn't your University. mother go to Harvard then at that point? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And she was a doctoral student at Harvard. Right. 
you you went to um, to the Concord Academy. I did, which was a privileged place to be. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the things you said is that you were the second generation of black children in elite white schools. Mm-hmm. But you said the knowledge of how to navigate such places had not been passed on to you. Right. So, and I, I think um, the knowledge of how to advocate an elite prep school hadn't been passed on to me in part because my parents hadn't had that particular experience, although my mother had gone to Catholic schools, but it was a very different sort of Southern black Catholic yeah. um, experience. Um, but also there wasn't a kind of institutional knowledge. I think the numbers really increased post-1970s in these sort of elite New England prep schools, but they hadn't yet really figured out how to embrace diversity, um, both in terms of academic content, but also in terms of helping us all develop a sense of ownership of the school. So not just being a visitor, but it belonging to us. Which is kind of what the entire, like every institution, every American institution was going through at that point. Absolutely. Um, You know, you, you have this lovely phrase that you used about these contradictions. You talked about finding the sweet in the bitter. Yeah. Tell us what you mean by that. Well, I, um, it's actually a phrase that I shared with a lot of younger students of color who came through prep schools because, I, you know, they could be embittering experiences being in, in those places, and oftentimes not just hostility from classmates. And I went to a progressive school that... Um, where people loved me and embraced me, and I loved my school as well, but also there was hostility in the town. You know, we got called a lot of unpleasant names when we walked down the street in really? town. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's this, this image that the South is the worst place for that, but um, Massachusetts can be pretty bad with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then there was also, you know, there were some teachers who were very hostile to the idea of diversifying the curriculum. And so when you'd have a book by an African-American author, I had, there was one teacher who said, well, we're not going to talk about this in class. You know, so there, was, there were multiple ways that even in a school that had committed itself to diversity was, was struggling. And so for me, it was finding the sweet and the bitter was not to dismiss the reality that um, there were a number of painful experiences associated with being at school, but also to not allow that to prevent me from finding joy. Mm-hmm. Right, and building meaningful relationships and also taking possession of the school. So, uh, you know, when I ran for senior class president, I wasn't saying to myself, well, they've never had someone who looks like me as senior class president. Now, I knew that, you know, not everybody was going to be enthusiastic about that, but, um, but I also knew that I belonged in the institution. You also tell this great story about taking an aerobics class, which was the thing people did back then. It was like the 70s version of yoga. Yeah, the 80s. Um, And the music that accompanied it, which was not your music. But then that you tuned in to these late night shows, you discovered hip hop, and you say, I listened in on the generation to which I belonged. So tell us about what hip hop means to you and meant to you. So there's a sense, and I think this is particularly true for the children of 60s and 70s activists, but I think it can be a a more generalized sense, that um, we sort of came to the party late. You know, we missed the revolution, we missed the excitement, we missed the activism, we missed the movement. Mm. 
Um, and there's a sense, I think, that we lived with the nostalgia for a time that wasn't our own. You know, what hip-hop gave to me was, and this is before it was on the radio and, actually, and before it was the way it is now, frankly, um, it was much, had much stronger political content, much more social commentary. I mean, it felt like an eruption in, mm-hmm. into um, the world of uh, Reaganomics and um, deindustrialization and all of the suffering that was being felt, I think, throughout across the country and particularly in urban centers. And here was a music that was articulating a voice that was challenging the world, right? Listen to me, listen to us, raise questions, all those sorts of things. And so, um, you know, for me, it felt like this is my moment, right? A mo- you know, I thought I had missed it. And here, um, here was something that emerged in my time, and I, it was incredibly nourishing. And it also, you know, the love of language, the play with language for someone who was a voracious reader really captivated me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, it, it was exciting to ha- hear popular culture embracing the kinds of words that I was trying to, you know, figure out in school as well. So um, it was very, very important for my development. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, in a public conversation with scholar of race, culture, law, and hip-hop, Imani Perry. We're speaking as part of the Chautauqua Institution's Week on the American Consciousness. So, I think we'll we'll come back to hip-hop in a moment. Um, You arrived at Harvard in 1994... You, you got a JD and a PhD, which was unusual and probably still is unusual. And it was also, as you note, in the 90s that scholarship was really becoming alert to the fact that, as you say, we were failing in our equality mission. Mm-hmm. You know, enough years had passed after that heyday of the civil rights movement. And, um, you know, the promised land had not been reached. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about your, I don't want to call it an argument, I want, you know, your, your thesis, your, an idea that you have proposed, um, that we think of ourselves in a time of post-intent racism, or that we are in post-intent times. So describe, you know, what you're defining there, what that is coming in over against. Right. So, okay, so the, my book starts with this premise that on the one hand, we're a society where everybody is committed to racial equality. You know, it's, it's generally considered bad taste, bad form, and you really do, And you really do take that seriously. I absolutely yeah. take it seriously. Yeah. And yet, you know, in every area that you measure, you see not just the evidence of the persistence of inequality, but that people act in ways that disadvantage certain groups on the basis of race, mm-hmm. right? And most heavily, this is directed towards black people, black Americans um, in the United States. And so, um, so for me, the question is, well, what's happening? Why, why this disjuncture between our stated purposes and our behavior? Um, and rather than saying, I think people are disingenuous, I'm actually, I actually spent time to try and figure out what was actually motivating the behavior to disadvantage. And I think it has a lot to do with um, not just racial stereotypes, but narratives. Um, and uh, categories and ways that we describe different spatial relationships. And, I, you know, I, I get well, this. What do you mean by that, spatial relationships? So, for example, well, just the, the simple term, bad neighborhood oh. or ghetto, right? And um, the lesson to avoid those places, 
the way that they're described as, um, as in really sensationalistic terms, dangerous, disordered, chaotic, um, and how that is connected to deep disinvestment, right? It has economic consequences. And do you think that um, our use of that language itself then makes those things more true Absolutely. to the extent there's a reality behind it, it intensifies that reality? Yes, and it also dictates behavior. Um, for me, this is such a powerful example because you always hear this, and politicians say this frequently, there's this Im image that um, black youth believe that doing well in school is acting white, and people say this all the time, and it's simply not true. And so anyone who does comprehensive research on the subject says that's not, in fact, true. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there's the same kind of value for education, so really the different outcomes has to do with inequality of opportunity or resources. And yet... This myth is so powerful that it gets trotted out again and again. And so I think the consequences of the kind of mythology are that then people interact with these youth in ways where they presume that they're not invested in education, right? So, you know, these, these narratives, these images, these they dictate behavior. They guide us. And I say us because it's a cultural problem. It's not a kind of binary problem, this race and that race. It's a cultural practice that we all learn um, living in a society. And I find this so much more helpful language. I mean, you are talking about structural racism, mm -hmm. right? That's one label to put on this. But that also makes it abstract. Yes. And, you know, you're taking out this motive. You're, you know, you're, you're saying, I mean, you're, you're, you're explaining on a very human level how one can not experience oneself to be racist, mm -hmm. be against racism, and yet behave in ways that support that lack of opportunity and that belittlement of other human beings. Right, and I think, you know, I say post-intent also because for me, um, I also want to get away from concentrating so much about on what's in people's hearts, you know, because I want to focus in, instead on the consequences for those who are subject to inequality. So I say post-intent, meaning that that's not really what we want to focus on, whether or not someone meant it. We want to focus on how people behave. How can we help people behave in, in better ways, in more generous ways, in more equitable fashion? Um, and you see, because we see, you know, there's both intentional and unintentional. Right. But the point is the consequence, right? Right. The, yeah, and that's what yeah. we have. And what this also gets at for me, I mean, something I think about a lot as a journalist, as a person in media, is. Um, we so rarely hear the whole story about anything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, about anything, because of the way we've defined news in the last hundred years, we hear about the extraordinarily bad part of politics, economics, mm -hmm. education, or other kinds of people. I mean, another example you've used in your writing is the South Bronx, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, just the South Bronx. I think many of us will have associations that come to mind with how, you know, what kinds of statistics or, or bad news stories that are associated with the South Bronx. But I mean, you, you know, you talk about like the two stories of the South Bronx that are both right. true for you. Right. So the South Bronx is also, I mean, it's the, the site for the creation of hip hop, but it's this incredible cosmopolitan space. There are people from all over the world who come together, right? There's a, there are beautiful landscapes or were created by graffiti and, and the like. So there's, you know, this, it was and is a kind of rich, vibrant cultural space. Um, and yet that's not part of the conversation yeah. about what the South Bronx 
is. Um, and the choice to describe it in one way or the other, of course, has policy consequences because if you say, well, there's nothing there so we can raise those buildings, or there's nothing, you know, this has happened all across the United States, there's nothing there so we can build a highway through that community, right? To talk about spaces in, in, in a diminishing way actually means that you devalue the people there and it becomes very easy to treat them and their neighborhoods as fungible. Right, spaces which human beings inhabit. Yeah. And also, the South Bronx is a real crucible of hip-hop movement, isn't it? Yes. Of this musical force, mm -hmm. which is so much bigger now than it was when you first discovered it. And I want to talk about that because, you know, you... You used the word nourishing a minute ago mm -hmm. in talking about hip-hop, and that is not an adjective that would come to mind probably for most of the people in this room right, yeah. when they heard about hip-hop. I mean, you know, and I, I just, here's another thing that you pointed out. You know, you said most Americans today have internalized Dr. King's belief that racism is immoral, but the problem remains when King said, let us be judged not by the color of our skin but by the content of our character, he was not prepared for the widespread impugning of black character in the 21st century. And I think this matter of hip-hop, which is just such a potent image now, especially that we associate perhaps with black young men, yes. is a good example of associations made with black character. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, one of the things that's really um, difficult in terms of talking about hip-hop, because on the one hand, and I, you know, earlier it was much easier for me where I could say... Well, this music gets scapegoated because all of the ills that we see in hip hop, we see in other forms, right? And that's was sort of the position I had in the 90s and the early 2000s. And really, um, in, in the intervening 14 years or so, right, it has become what you get on the radio or the most popular artists, yeah. the content has become more and more narrow. It's about conspicuous consumption. It's about um, having lots of women. It's about um, kind of masculinist violence, power, that kind of thing. And, and it actually is, I think, in some ways, the most extreme popular cultural forms of those things with the exception of action movies right now. Um, there is a much broader landscape of the music, but those artists, by and large, don't get signed to major labels. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the questions is why, and, and the, the vast majority of the audience for hip hop is no longer black. Um, so one question would be to ask, you know, why is this so desirable, right? And I do think on some level it's selling fantasies of what ghetto life is like, right? Yeah. Kind of purient fantasies, things that are, you know, foreboding and exciting. And so, um, but the circulation of that fantasy absolutely has social consequences. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that this is something that both people who do, who have done scholarship on hip hop, but also I think people in communities across the country are just struggling with, you know, how do we push back against what we are seeing in the music, even if it's the music that we love? I mean, I have a 16 year old white son mm -hmm. who loves hip hop, but what I notice more than anything else, you know, he'll sometimes say, um, I'll try to listen, and he'll say, no mom, you're too innocent. That's not appropriate for you, right? But, but what, I, what I see that's magic about that music is how I watch that music go all the way through his body. Oh, oh yeah. And it, yes, it's popular music, but it's poetic. It absolutely You know absolutely. what I mean? There's something in it that transcends, and I really don't spend a lot of time listening to the mm -hmm. most inflammatory lyrics, but I don't worry about it because there's something in it that's powerful that transcends 
whatever, you know, the things that you could get upset about on the surface as well. I think that's true of some of the music, and I do think that increasingly sound is more important than text. I think there was an earlier era in which the words mattered more, and I think with the rise of Southern hip-hop in particular, even when someone is speaking, the sound and the vocalization and what the artist is doing with the voice, it oftentimes is more important than what they're saying. Um, So I do think that's absolutely the case, and um, the play with language is always exciting, irrespective of the content. But I do think there is this this question, though, that, that I think many artists are going to be increasingly challenged to push. So if the words don't matter that much, then might you consider other words Hmm. (laughs) you know I mean you know if 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 the particularly I think for for women and I think and for me this is a particular concern for women in poor urban communities and what the messages about their value I think is um somewhat alarming but that you, I mean, one of your books is about hip hop, and mm-hmm. um, you struggle with the music, with what's hard, challenging in the music mm-hmm. to women, but you also really find a place for strong yes. women in that music. And how old, you have two sons? Is that I right? do. And how old are they? Eight and 11. Okay. Yes. Um, and I, I regulate their music quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, yesterday here, Roberto Unger, who used to be your professor, he was I just my learned, he taught me jurisprudence. Told us that schools should be raising our children to be prophets. And the title of your book on hip hop, hip hop, was "Prophets of the Hood." Mm-hmm. Interesting allusion. That is interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and I don't know. I, I think that's an interesting challenge, and I've never thought about whether schools can do that. I see what he's saying in, in about sort of raising young people to be prophetic in the sense of there's a kind of preparation that will illuminate them um, in ways that can move us towards a better place. Yeah. I think the, the way that I was using um, prophetic was about a kind of illumination of ideas and arguments that are in places in the society that were invisible to the larger society, mm-hmm. right? and so, in the sense that a that a prophetic voice um, can emerge from a place that has been invisibilized, that has been obscured, um, that's what I was seeing in the music. You can listen again and share this conversation with Imani Perry through our website, onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with the first in a four-part series of public conversations on the American consciousness. Imani Perry is a scholar of law, culture, and race, and a professor at the Center for African American Studies of Princeton University. 
I spoke with her in front of a live audience at the Chautauqua Institution in upstate New York just a few weeks before the shooting of 18-year-old Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, reawakened questions lingering from incidents like the death of 17-year-old Trayvon Martin and the acquittal of the man who shot him, George Zimmerman. Imani Perry has written searchingly about what such events continue to mean, especially to the generation of her young sons. So, ever since we elected an African-American president, it seems that we continue to revisit the problem that we still don't know how to talk about race. Mm-hmm. But, and we end up talking about it then in moments of crisis. And I've, I've wondered, you know, something like the Trayvon Martin shooting. I've wondered if, you know, it seems to me that the, the moments when we then talk about it are so anguished and they seem like imperfect moments. But having said that, I started reading some of what you wrote around those events and all the way through the trial and the acquittal of George Zimmerman. And I, I questioned myself whether that really was an imperfect moment or whether it's as good a moment as any. Um, so I wonder if you would talk about, you know, what, what does that particular event or an event like that say to you about the American consciousness that it's worth all of us continuing to reflect on after the fact? So part of what um, the murder of Trayvon Martin immediately registered for me is that this is um, the sort of the ultimate fear of the mother of any black boy in this country. And I think that isn't necessarily widely understood. I mean, even in the midst of the trial, um, that the concept that someone might murder your child with utter impunity and there not be a remedy is real and has been real for, and and it's not just mothers, it's fathers, it's aunts and uncles, right? But there's something particular, I think, for me, as a mother of two two boys. And also trying to explain it to them in a way that would not have them walking through life constantly terrified. Yeah. Right? Because, and my older son once said to me, you know, and this was in relationship to several other incidents, where do I go if there's trouble, if the police might even kill me? Right? You know, Mm -hmm. when I'm innocent, right? And so, um, so I think that that you know, that is, I think, a, a racial divide. I think that we have other ones with respect to the lives of undocumented children. You know, there are, yeah. there are multiple um, divides in that way where we are not fully cognizant of the experiences that other people in our midst are having. Um, I think the moment was instructive, though devastating, um, in a number of ways. One, this need, this discourse around uh, Trayvon's innocence was really instructive because I think Americans are, are unhealthily obsessed with the idea of innocence. I mean, I, mean, I think that's part of the impediment that we have in general with talking about race. The idea of innocence? Be, I want to be innocent. I'm not, I'm right. not this. Yeah. I'm not right, right? And so, but I also think there was this conversation about, is he innocent? Is he not? Well, he, he skipped school once. He smoked marijuana. I mean, this, all of these things, which are fully human and normal for young boys, be- suddenly become ways of suggesting that he might have merited being right. murdered, even that he might have fought back, right? So that there's this, you know, this, this image that what is required to be acceptable 
um, as a black boy is a sort of image of perfection, no failure, no mistake, no error ever. Right. Right? Otherwise, uh, you can't be given the benefit of the doubt. I, I mean, for me, that is illustrative of one of the most powerful racial discourses, right? This idea that always being suspect, right? Always being likely to be guilty and how that sort of acts as a, a kind of sort of hangs over um, one's shoulders everywhere you go. And I read um, in what you wrote, and this is really heartbreaking, you know, that your sons wept when they heard that George Zimmerman had yeah. been acquitted. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and also what I found, I don't know, comforting in a way or you, helpful was you, you, one of the things you talked to them about was that you attended a rally afterward and, mm -hmm. and you said, look at all these people who are around us. And again, the reason I think that's important just to note something very practical like that is that it's worth showing up at a rally Yes. For your sons. Mm -hmm. And I think for all of us, because I think that particularly we, what you, we talked about, this idea of um, kind of structural racism or the abstraction or institutional racism or inequality and the like. I mean, I mean we, we are agents of our world, right? And so, you know, we, we encounter tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. And so then we can become sort of passive witnesses to all of these tragedies in our midst or we can be actively engaged, and I think that's a process of liberating oneself, to be actively engaged in the world and in the work of transforming it. Uh, I mean, so it was meaningful for them, I think, for the other people to be around, but I also think it's meaningful for them for uh, kind of growing up, becoming adults, becoming people who have some sense of civic and social responsibility, because, you know, one could also say in some ways, I can protect them from so much. They are privileged children. Right, but they and so they have these fears, but they're also relatively privileged. And yet, my sense is that whether it has something to do directly with them or not, you know, they have a responsibility in this world. Mm -hmm. I actually want to read. I, I think we'll do. We'll open this conversation up. Before we do that, um, or as you might be coming up to the microphone, I I just want to dwell for a minute on this beautiful blog post. You use this image, you started it by saying, have you ever seen a small plant that has a splint holding it up? Mm -hmm. would, you, would you illuminate that image? You know, I, I, um, I guess I think that, you know, the work of nurturing development is always requires us to lean on someone else or to be there for someone to lean on, to facilitate, to... Uh, to nurture, and I, uh, you know, and, and I think that that's how we should think about not just our families, but as a, our cities, our states, our, our nation. Um, we are in a moment where we are being socialized into the, an intense competition. I mean, I think that yeah. everything is marketized. Every aspect of our lives is marketized. And it creates a lot of anxiety, right? Because we don't want to be left behind or left out. But I think the, the, the other side of that anxiety is that it really isolates us from a sense of responsibility to each other. So for me, the image uh, you know, of kind of holding up a, a sprout is... Um, powerful because that's what it takes. You know, sometimes we pretend like that's not what it took for us, mm -hmm. but that's what it takes for everyone. But it, I also like the image because it's, the sprout has its vitality, right? Yes. It's not, no, it's, it's not, not passive, compensating right. yeah. for something even. No, it's, mm -hmm. it's just allowing it to come into its own inborn right. vitality. Okay. Um, yes. 
in your article uh, for the Washington Post about uh, the five myths of uh, Brown versus the Board of Education, you wrote about how some African Americans were not exactly against it, but were one of the costs of it was giving up the professional institution of the black schools. Yeah. Would you expand on that? Sure. So one of the things, you know, um, that when we talk about desegregation and Brown versus Board of Education that is oftentimes lost out in the story uh, is that there was incredible loss of institutions. You know, schools in, um, in the segregated South were community institutions. Um, they had a body, you know, the teachers and principals comprised a large portion of the black professional class. Um, so, and the, the dominant narrative is that the schools were just terrible. Well, they were underfunded and there weren't enough of them, but many of the schools were extraordinary. And what happened with desegregation, which was a very long process, was that rather than integrating faculty, you know, teachers and integrating what is that there was massive uh, loss of black professionals, teachers who lost their jobs, principals who lost their jobs, and schools remained segregated. Right, because of um, white flight or private academies and the like. And so, um, and there were people who were concerned that this was what was going to happen. They were correct. Now, I think that most people think, well, this was a sacrifice that was made by the community in order to transform the nation. Um, I think they took out that sentence in the Washington Post, but that's really how I conceive of it. And so while schools were not integrated and while much of the, many of the most important schools in many communities were lost, um, the other side is that all of the public facilities were, were integrated, all kinds, you know, it led to the integration of higher right, education. Right, that point so. you made, that it, that wasn't just about schools. Right, no, it wasn't just about and schools. And it's an example of how um, we have too shallow a memory 50 years on of mm. a lot of things about the civil rights movement. We have yes. just a few names we know. You know. Right, and even the, the, to focus on the charismatic leaders as opposed yes. to communities. Yes. I mean, it was really communities, and they, they pushed the leaders yeah. um, to become what they were. Yeah. yeah. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, in a public conversation with scholar of race, culture, law, and hip-hop, Imani Perry. We're speaking as part of the Chautauqua Institution's Week on the American Consciousness. Okay. Thank you so much for such a wonderful talk. I want to return to your point about the importance of language in shaping consciousness and even framing reality. You mentioned how concerned you were about the devaluation of space, for example, in the South Bronx and the role that language plays. But it seems to me perhaps you're not as concerned about the devaluation of women in hip hop lyrics. And I feel like I'm missing something. Could you clarify, please? Oh, that's what I, part of what I was talking about, was absolutely the sexism and even misogyny in the lyrics. That's what I was referring to when I was talking about what is happening today in the music. Um, you have conspicuous consumption, you have the, I, the treating of women as possessions, exploitation of women and the like, absolutely. Now, I will say again though, that is not characteristic of all of the music. That's who's getting signed to major labels, right? And so the responsibility doesn't just lie on hip hop, the responsibility lies on the corporations and also the consumers of the music, right? And so for me, the question is why do people want to buy music that communicates those messages? I think that that's an important question for us to ask ourselves. The first uh, uh, questioner stole my question, so I'm going to ask you if you could elaborate on what you feel the 
future of for-profit education, for-profit schools, charter schools, magnet schools, all of those things is going to have the black community and especially the lower income areas of the country in the future. Thank you. Um, for me, this is, uh, I think, a really important question is we're, see we're witnessing the privatization of public education across the country. The push to charters um, and entire systems becoming charter systems, as, in, as is the case now in New Orleans. Um, much of the conversation around it, is, which I think is really interesting, is around African American and Latino children. Much of that conversation is about the achievement gap, and by that they mean a racial achievement gap. Um, and as opposed to, well, we can set that aside for a moment and say, we could talk about an opportunity gap instead of an achievement gap and might be talking about something that's actually more meaningful. But that said, um, one of the things that we're seeing is that any problems that we see in public education are worse when there's less regulation. And so I think that um, the consequence of this move towards privatization is going to be devastating uh, for the poorest children and for um, uh, black and Latino children in general, even though there are some you know, remarkable examples of successful individual schools. When we look at the picture overall, um, I think that all of us need to be concerned with what's happening to public education. Um, I guess my question is maybe two parts. Um, one, if, if you could see one structural thing that you'd like to see change, what would it be? And that would make the biggest difference for African Americans right now. And um, the second part of it is, you know, nobody wants to think of themselves as racist, but a lot of people who are white have no idea like how to be better allies. So if you could kind of magically transform our, you know, people's consciousness and like, you know, something that would help people be a better ally, what would that be? You know, I, I almost, I'm going to not really answer your question because I think that it is the process, it is in the process that people are transformed, right? So um, I talked about this a couple of days ago in a talk that I think in terms of our sort of organizing efforts, um, to the extent that we can be devoted to power sharing along lines of race, along lines of class, right? Um, that we can be committed to actually assuming that every person at the table has meaningful contribution, who has meaningful knowledge, right? That those sorts of things, I think, allow for multiracial, multi-class, multi-able-bodied, uh, disabled, that kind of kind of community that allows us to be transformed and also to transform the world we live in. So I, I have such um, hesitation for any kind of magic wand solution because I think the, the way that we change is in the doing, right? Um, uh, doing things in a different way. I think it really out of school learning communities that are multi-generational, that um, would be an incredibly important movement, I think. I mean, there are examples of them, but in all sorts of communities, right? So communities of values, I mean, I think this is a, a wonderful example, but if we could really devote ourselves to creating many of those, um, I think that also would lead to great transformation. Hello, and thank you very much. I'm from Rochester, New York. We're working on a facing race, embracing equity effort that gets at the structural racial biases that exist. Is there any other community or communities that you are aware of that have actually made the structural changes uh, to reduce the racism in their particular community? And then the second question I have for you is, how does your spiritual life affect 
how you go on from day to day? That's a fantastic question. So the first, I mean, I think there are there are many um, examples, although not the ones that immediately come to mind are not necessarily nonprofit organizations. I mean, I think that you know the way. So I can think of various kind of activist mo movements. So um, for me, a wonderful example would be there's sort of three three moments of the Rainbow Coalition. Most of us just know the Jesse Jackson 1988 Rainbow Coalition. But in Boston, Mel King had a Rainbow Coalition where he created alliances between workers, between LGBT communities, um, women's rights, class issues, et cetera, et cetera, and race. And so it was a model of actually doing organizing that allowed these different communities to come together on equal footing. And I think that that's, that's the way to do it. And I think actually institutional structures that follow from that type of organizing tend to be able to um, uh, maintain that. And then there's the first Rainbow Coalition was actually Fred Hampton, who doesn't, who isn't imagined as someone who has that kind of vision because he emerged out of the Black Panther Party, but he actually advocated a Rainbow Coalition of, of working people of various uh, race before he was murdered. And so, um, so I think there are, there are, models, and I also think um, John McKnight's asset-based community development model of organizing suggests that, that approach as well. Um, and what's, where's that based, or what? It teaches an approach to community organizing that assumes that everybody has assets and skills. It actually reminds me of Ella Baker's organizing in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating mm -hmm. Committee, where the thought was, we're not going to go to this you know, these uh, communities in, in the Mississippi Delta and tell them what to do, we're going to facilitate the emergence of local leadership. We're going to listen to who amongst, who in this community has which sorts of skills and then let that emerge, you know, that kind of leadership emerge um, somewhat organically. Um, and so it's, it's in some ways, it's, it's similar to that. It's sort of let's take inventory as opposed to assuming mm. these certain communities are filled with deficit. What can people do? What do they know? What skills do they have? How, you know, how are they connected to this person or that person? And so um, I think those sorts of models are almost, are really, um, it's hard to just say, well, let me see how I want to say this. I think that can be more effective than also than simply saying, we're going to be less racist by having different leadership. Right? Because I, I do think that we have to change the way we think, how we examine the people we encounter, what assumptions we make. And so actually doing the work of sort of drawing that out, I think is helpful mm -hmm. in that regard. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of my spiritual life um, and the work that I do, I, I think of all the work that I do as being one sort of guided by a higher purpose, I think being, uh, I think the principles of of being humane and kind and loving and against domination and against brutality are what constant, you know, it's a big part of what it means to be a good person. And so all of my work is emerging from that place. And it's also um, in many ways emerging from wanting to continue the work of the people who came before me. So um, I think of my grandmother who read every single day, who was one of the most brilliant people I ever knew, and who, for whom there wasn't really much opportunity besides being a domestic laborer, and that there are many people in the world similarly situated today. And so um, I think, I mean, I could go through the book, every idea connects to something she said to me, every single mm -hmm. one. Um, I want to come back just to this question of the guidance you might offer to people here. There were some small things that I found really 
you helpful in your writing. Um, and this very much gets at the idea of the American consciousness, that we are free, not from, but for. Mm -hmm. Freedom to, freedom instead of freedom to. from. Yeah. yeah. Because I think that freedom, you know, there's a kind of traditional libertarian conception of freedom, which is like, everybody leave me alone, don't bother me. And then I think a freedom too is a, is a kind of, I think a liberation approach, which is really about how can we undo domination that gets in the way of us living healthy lives? How can we actually create things that are meaningful and joyful? And I, that's what I think of as freedom too. Um, you know, if you have a conception of freedom that, that always sees other people reaching out to you as an incursion, yeah. then I think that's a very limited and narrow conception of freedom. Right? Yeah. That we are free to create the world we want to live yeah. in. Um, and the other thing, the other small story, um, you, you talked about in your own life and with your sons that, there t that you even have found yourself ignored in a checkout line or just moments where you have felt this racial gap. And that there, there have been people who you know, committed simple acts of grace, right? Somebody who said something, somebody who stepped in. Yeah, yeah. And that that really is powerful and important. It's powerful and important, and I think we discount the significance of those acts. But I'll give you an example. We were in... Um, Mississippi taking, this was this summer, me and my sons taking a bus to Alabama. And a young man, we are in line getting food, and a young man, and he uh, was Honduran, and actually was not, um, not fluent in English, just, um, steps in front of us in line. And I said, excuse me, um, we're here. And, and he laughed and turned his back. And you know, this is not unfamiliar. I mean, learning the codes of American racism happens very quickly. And you know, I, I get a little enraged at things like that. So yeah. I pushed his food yeah. down and <laughs> stepped back in front of him in line. And, and, and my sons are now accustomed to that from me. Um, and they said, well, why did he do that? And I sort of was trying to explain. And then when we got on the bus, um, I sat next to a, Hon a Honduran woman who was in the same group. Um, and we had the most beautiful, loving conversation. She gave my children her blanket. She talked about um, trying to help get her daughter to stay in high school. And, and, and when I told them, I said, you know, if you read that single incident as reflective of the entire community, then you shut off the possibility of this lovely time that we had, right? And also, um, you know, there's potential that he might be transformed by witnessing her relationship with us, right, on, on, that, on that ride. And so, I mean, I think those, you know, we think that these things are so small because the problems are so big, uh, but I think they matter. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. And I want you to read some of your own words. And this was from that blog post that you wrote. I believe it was a blog post or an article about after the Trayvon Martin events, and I think this is the one that started with the question, have you ever seen a small plant that has a splint holding it up? So would you just read this? And I'm going to let, we're going to close with you reading yourself. Because while on the one hand I am training my sons to develop resilience in the face of the racial injustice they will encounter, 
I am also training them to approach the world with full recognition and appreciation of the wide spectrum of human beings, some of whom are quite different from them. They know that they have an ethical responsibility to humanity, animal life, and nature, to care beyond their immediate experiences. We talk about gender and sexual orientation and disability and mental health, along with race, ethnicity, and language. They are encouraged to be critical and analytical, to use those enormous imaginations to journey into the interior lives of others. Together, we create gardens of possibility in the parched earth. If we grow the babies upright, they just might redeem us all. Imani Perry is a professor at the Center for African American Studies at Princeton University and a faculty associate in the Law and Public Affairs program there. Her scholarly works include Prophets of the Hood, Politics and Poetics in Hip Hop, and More Beautiful and More Terrible, The Embrace and Transcendence of Racial Inequality in the United States. Black race founded on blatant denial, squeeze economics, subsistence survival, deafening silence and social control. Just found in all wounds in the soul When the dogs bite, when the bees sing When I'm feeling sad I simply remember all these kinds of things And then I don't fear so This is Lauren Hill, one of Imani Perry's favorite artists, with a hip-hop reworking of the Sound of Music song, My Favorite Things. It's called Black Rage, and you can find the lyrics at onbeing.org. There you can also listen again or share this episode and join in our ongoing conversation in the wake of events in Ferguson, Missouri and elsewhere. We've had a profound response to Courtney Martin's column, To Be White and Reckon with the Death of Michael Brown. Find all that and much more at onbeing.org. On Being is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Chris Jones, and Becca Johnson. Special thanks this week to Robert Franklin and Maureen Raveno at the Chautauqua Institution and to Mitch Hanley. On Being is supported by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org, and by Calliopeia Foundation, contributing to organizations that weave reverence, reciprocity, and resilience into the fabric of modern life. On Being is distributed by American Public Media and is a Krista Tippett Public Production.